I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Steve, I'm delighted to be on it. Uh, so you're joining us all the way from the home of Apple in Palo Alto, is that right? Well, I'm in Palo Alto, California, so it's like the heart of Silicon Valley here. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And um, I have to say, you know, as a huge Pixar fan, let's just get the most important question out of the way first. What's your favorite Pixar film? Well, you know, my favorite is probably Finding Nemo, just because I'm a sucker for the father-son story. Uh-huh. But uh, as we felt at Pixar, they're kind of all the film, all the films are like our children, so I love them all. Yeah, and I guess Finding Nemo does definitely bring out those paternal instincts in in a lot of people. Um, and I guess thanks are in order because you know, if it wasn't for some of the work you did when you joined Pixar back in 1994. Toy Story and the 17 movies that followed may never have seen the light of day. So tracing your story back, and we can talk about the book in a second, but can you tell us the story of when Steve Jobs first made contact to woo you over to Pixar back in 1994? Sure, yeah, this is actually where the book starts anyway. so But I was um, at that time, I was a business executive in Silicon Valley, and I was working for another startup company that was called Electronics for Imaging. They're still around, mm-hmm. and I've been there for a few years, and my phone rang in my office. I pick up the phone, and on the other end of the line, I hear, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago, and I thought we might work together someday. I have a little company I'd like to tell you about. And I thought he was talking about Next Computer, which mm-hmm. was the company that he was sort of famous for at the time. Yeah. Uh, and But then he said, it's Pixar. And inside, I was going, what's Pixar? Mm-hmm. I had barely heard of it, had very little recollection of it. Uh, and that's how that whole adventure began. Fantastic. And you've chronicled, like you said, this adventure in your new book, To Pixar and Beyond, which comes out in Australia this Friday, the 17th of March. It just came out in the UK, and it's it's been out in the States, I believe, since, since November. But the UK... The lucky uh, readers in the UK get a much sexier cover, as I was fortunate enough to have a look at a few moments ago. But, um, you know, you've been working away with Juniper for for the past, uh, what, 13 years now. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I guess I'm curious to explore what prompted you to put pen to paper um, and pen to Pixar and beyond about 11 years after leaving the organization. Oh, that's actually a great question. There were a couple of things that happened. One was that, you know, after Steve obviously died young, tragically, and mm-hmm. um, there was a whole ton of like movies and documentaries and books that were written in the aftermath of his of his death. And there was a part of me that was sort of feeling that the Pixar story of his life um, was sort of an afterthought. It was as if he, you know, started at Apple and then left Apple, and then twelve years later he went back to Apple. And I was kind of like going, well, "Wait a minute! This story that happened in the middle was a really important story both for understanding him and for understanding Pixar so that was one thing that uh, sort of gnawed away at me a little bit and I realized that if I didn't tell that story it probably wouldn't get told then the other thing that happened is I had this kind of insight one day a few years ago where I could 
draw a link between Pixar and the work that I've been doing since, which is all about uh, Eastern philosophy and meditation, and particularly a philosophy called the Middle Way, which is a sort of a way of living life with a certain kind of harmony. And I could see that I could use Pixar as a metaphor for telling that. And so I put those two things together and I gave it as a talk. Uh, I first spoke about it uh, at Harvard Law School, where I had graduated many years before. Mm -hmm. Then I was invited to talk about it at Pixar. And that, those things went over really well. And so then I was like, okay, maybe I should write this as a book. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess that's where the and beyond comes from, chronicling the time you've spent researching and teaching Eastern philosophy and meditation to corporates post your departure from Pixar. That's right. That's the the the, um, the and beyond part of the of the title, which yeah. is that the, the main part of the story is the the story of you know how of how we turn Pixar into a, a major entertainment company. But then it does link it to the work that I that I did after. Excellent. So on turning Pixar into a major entertainment company, so Steve Jobs gave you this call back in 1994. You accepted. What did you find when you first joined Pixar? Well. Like joining many startups, it takes a certain amount of naivete uh -huh. to, to, to go in there. Sometimes, like, if you really knew the risks involved in a startup, no startups would probably ever happen. And so <laughs> what I found when I went in there was very different than what I expected uh, when I walked in. Um, uh, Pixar was doing a... Uh, they were involved in a bunch of different activities. They were making software. They were making uh, commercials, animated commercials. They were doing short films. They had this sort of film project going on called Toy Story. And when I went in, I thought the goal would be, it's funny, you know, like it never occurred to me that I was going in there to build an entertainment company. So I, I thought Pixar was a graphics company, a technology company, and I thought we'd take all these cool technologies at Pixar and we'd build businesses out of them and they would help offset each other from the risks. So the first thing I understood after a couple of months in there was that that strategy had no hope because the things that I thought could turn into businesses actually didn't have any possibility for scaling. So that was the first big surprise. Mm -hmm. The second big surprise was that Pixar had a very toxic relationship with Steve. And that toxicity was in some ways rubbed off on me because people thought I was coming in as Steve's guy. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, so their frustrations that they had had with him over the years um, sort of rubbed off on me, which that was okay. What bothered me more was the toxicity itself. And, mm -hmm. and I realized that that wasn't healthy for the, for the company. And the third problem that I discovered was that Pixar had entered this contract with the Walt Disney Company for the making of Toy Story and several other animated feature films that tied Pixar's hands up to such an extent that it had just no room to move at all. And so two months into it, I was pretty convinced I'd made the biggest mistake of my career in terms of, of going in there. Wow. Um, there's a few things I wanted to um, dig deeper on there. And I guess, firstly, on the toxicity and you know, staff having somewhat of a, I suppose, resentment and mistrust for Steve Jobs. There seems to be, you know, some conflicting stories out there. I know Ed Catmull um, said that it was a transformed and collaborative Jobs who led Apple to success, not the tyrant played out in films, books, and, and countless blogs. So, I mean, do you explore this topic in your book? I do. Uh, you know, I, I think that the arc of um, Steve's 
sort of progress from you know the first Apple to second Apple, the important changes of that happened during these few years of Pixar. Mm-hmm. And you know there were several things that happened in that time period that I think had a big impact on him. And you know you see in the book how that toxic relationship was really transformed ultimately to a very productive and very beautiful relationship actually uh, and I think the process of that along with some other things had a big and important impact on Steve mm. it did seem that he mellowed out quite a bit um, in, in the latter years of his life uh, and I remember and don't quote me on this, but I think when he was on his deathbed, he basically said something along the lines of he wishes he would have spent more time uh, with family. Whereas greeting his biopic uh, in, in the seventies was very much just business, 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 and take no prisoners sort of approach to life. Yeah, he was very, very focused, no question about it. But my relationship with him was one I, I would describe as very rich and, and very collaborative. If you mm. ask me for one word to describe it, I would say it was collaborative. And the reason I say that... Um, is because he had certainly an intensity about him when he believed something and he once thought something should be a certain way. Um, it would take a lot to sort of stand up to that if you didn't agree. But he, um, but he was interested in getting to the right answer mm. more than he was interested in being right. Right. And so, uh, and so the process of working together in a, trying to forge um, a strategy for a company that we really didn't know what direction to go in was one of uh, just trying, sort of debating all sides of the, the different arguments and so we could try to get to the right answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on uh, Pixar's hands being tied by Disney effectively, most of our audience are engaged in corporate innovation roles where they're accountable to external stakeholders, whether it could be shareholders, it could be people within the organization as well. Um, and that can often stifle the ability to go out, experiment, be creative, try different things, fail, pick yourself back up, all that sort of stuff. How did Pixar navigate um, their hands being tied by Disney um, around the time of Toy Story? Well, you know, Pixar was a company that sort of honed that kind of capacity by creating a culture that allowed for um, a degree of openness and harmonization of conflicting forces. And so in the case of Pixar, as is true for many companies, you have these forces that are tugging against each other. So in one direction, you've got like the creative force that just, you know, wants to do amazing creative work at any cost, right? Then you have technical forces that are saying, wait a minute, we don't have the software, the technology that is enables that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have business, you know, forces. You know, an example of the business force would be um, how often do you make films? Mm-hmm. You know, from a from a business point of view, from from my side, it's like you can't make them often often enough. <laughs> you know, uh, when I went to Pixar, we were making a film every four years, and there was a big debate about how often it should be. I wanted it to be like once a year or or more often than that. So the challenge is. Can you create a culture that allows all of those tensions to sort of respectfully work with each other in order to come to solutions to those things? If if the creative force is sort of too dominant and then the business considerations may not have enough weight. If the business force is too dominant, the creative uh, considerations might be stifled. And so it's it's the harmony. That culture is very delicate and, and that's what Pixar really honed over the years. Mm, and that's an interesting uh, point around how many movies 
do you make being one of those fundamental business questions and yourself as the CFO uh, back then wanting to make one movie a year, which makes perfect business sense. But if you do make one movie a year, does it then compromise the quality of the movies? And um, this is, I suppose, uh, an ongoing struggle at many companies who you know rely on financial metrics like uh, return on investment, internal rate of return when making investment decisions in new ideas, new products, and so on. But those metrics often force us to focus on the short term and can come at the cost of exploring something a little bit more disruptive, a little bit more out of the box. So how did you as a CFO kind of balance that, you know, those financial metrics, those business metrics with releasing awesome films? Well, the I realized like in the case of Pixar, I felt and it was it was very difficult to raise funds to finance the studio because mm-hmm. the risks of making animated feature films is just so high that it's very hard to get people to buy into it. And so we, what, what I ended up doing was saying, you know, the way to navigate this is to be completely transparent about it. And so when we talk to investors, when we talk to stakeholders, um, we put out exactly what it was that um, we were aiming for and exactly what the risks were. We did not sugarcoat the risks. We didn't pretend it was going to be something that it wasn't. And we asked people if they would take that journey with us. And in many ways, it comes down to that. You know, sometimes you have boards of directors out here in Silicon Valley, for example, that will say, I don't even want to see any profits this year. I want everything invested back in yeah. innovation. Um, and so like, innovation, by definition, you know, requires a very high level of risk because by its own definition, it's something that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And so it's like creativity. You know, it, you can't legislate creativity. You can't walk <laughs> into a room, you know, and say, okay, our goal this week is to make a great story. Uh, you can only create the conditions for innovation and creativity to take place. And Pixar was really, really good at that. And um, and I think that it's like the secret source is, is the, the word is really culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have a culture of innovation, a culture of creativity. And that sounds kind of soft, you know, like, well, what do you mean culture, right? How do you measure it? How do you know what it is? Mm-hmm. But um, that's something that Pixar paid a lot of attention to. Yeah, and I guess even aligning uh, the expectations of investors with uh, Pixar's goals and saying, hey, you may not get a return on your investment for five to seven years, potentially. We may take four years to release a movie, but that then does help to create those conditions because you haven't constantly got investors breathing down your neck saying, hey, when's the movie coming out and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Right. That's how we did it. And of course, to do that, the investors have to trust the innovative forces within the company. And Mm -hmm. so as a corporation, you have to know how good your creative forces are. Um, And and if you can trust them to, you know, have the shot at doing really great work. But if you've got people that... um, you know, have a shot at that kind of a thing, then many times stakeholders will want to bet on that. Mm. I guess I wanted to sidestep over to the roadmap you helped to develop at Pixar. You joined in 1994. It's no secret that in 95, Pixar released Toy Story, one of the most successful films that Pixar has released. I think it had something like a $370 million box office take, so it was quite successful. But you needed to uh, effectively implement a roadmap which turned Pixar around. Now, I guess keen to hear a little bit more about that roadmap, but also what were some of the challenges in implementing that roadmap internally? What were some of the hurdles? Well, um, there were different 
parts of that roadmap. Uh, mm -hmm. Some had to do with uh, how rapidly do we scale up the studio. Um, so that's a question of how can you scale innovation and creativity. Um, and so, as I mentioned, as we talked about earlier, we looked, we basically modeled out every scenario, you know, mm -hmm. a film every four years, a film every three years, every two years, you know, uh, and looked at the different sort of box office scenarios of, of what it meant. Um, but that really gave us, it really helped to look at um, sort of how often to release films and then how to how rapidly we needed to build the studio mm. one of the scarce resources at pixar is that the the kind of people to do that kind of innovation and creativity are rare and mm. i think this is a challenge for any company trying to do innovative work is finding the talent that can do it and so we created an entire system in order to scour the world for the talent that we needed to scale the company mm -hmm. so that's one example Another example, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book because I think it's it, it's one of the most difficult decisions that companies face, and that decision is essentially who ultimately has control over its creative decisions. Mm -hmm. Who you know now in Pixar's case, that means control over um, you know the story and the characters in the film, but. In any endeavor, whether it's creating a new brand or a new marketing campaign or designing, you know, the label for a bottle, um, there are a large number of creative decisions. And executives tend to want to have a lot of sort of keep a short leash on those decisions. The reason for that is because mis creative mistakes are expensive mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you go halfway down a movie making of a film and, and you realize that it's not working, the, lead, the main character isn't working out, or a major element of the story isn't going to work, you know, in the case of Pixar, that could be a $20 million mistake to go mm -hmm. and fix it. But it's true for any kind of creative decisions. You've got to go pretty far down, then you might realize you're, you're on the wrong track. So at Pixar, what we did was we baked that in. We didn't pretend that we weren't, you know, we'd somehow avoid creative mistakes or creative errors. We mm -hmm. assumed that that they were going to happen and we right. built them into the process. Uh, so those are just a couple of examples. You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're, a, uh, you're an accent figure. You are a child. So at this point of the program, I asked Lawrence about the several script rewrites that Toy Story went through, Disney shutting down Toy Story midway through production, and what some of the challenges were to finally getting what became one of the highest grossing box office animations of all time to the cinema screens. Well, uh, the 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 characters were not likable. <laughs> the uh -huh. the original versions of, of of Woody and Buzz were, especially you know Woody was sort of like sort of you know mean spirited and and uh -huh. and not that appealing, um, and and that's a big problem. And so, but I'll say you know that there isn't a film that Pixar has made that didn't have that kind of crisis. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, I've almost come to conclude, I don't think it's possible to do really great, creative, innovative work without some crisis along the way where you're kind of like, where you, you have that feeling like we've lost our way. Mm. And the thing is, the, the thing that happens is what happens at the moment when you realize that your creative team, your innovative team has lost its way? Yeah. What? Often happens is at that point the executives want to take over. 
So they want to come in and try to prevent, you know, and try to fix it. And the challenge is, uh, and it takes a lot of courage to do this, like to allow your creative people to sort of navigate their way out of it, mm -hmm. to give them tools to navigate their way out of it rather than pull the rug from them. Yeah, and, and on what you mentioned there about losing our way, I think you know a lot of startup entrepreneurs refer to this as the uh, trough of despair where you could be working on something and some days you feel like there's a lot of momentum and then you may go through a two or three week period where nothing seems to be moving, your metrics aren't moving at all. Venture capitalists don't want to talk to you. You're not generating any new revenue and you just question things. Um, and I think that's just part of the creative process. And, and most successful startups, the idea that eventually ends up finding product market fit, generating revenue is generally a far cry from the initial sort of uh, nugget or, or root of an idea that they first had. But it takes that experimentation, that process to come to that solution. It does. I, I, I wish there was a way to shortcut it. I, I when when I started at Pixar and I saw I saw it like it takes four to five years to make a film, mm -hmm. and I said to myself, "Wow, like that's a that's a, a really long time. Like surely we can shorten that." And when I left Pixar, I was like, "I can't believe we can make a film in only four <laughs> or five years," <laughs> oh, love that, love that. Um, because I grew respect for that kind of. The, the, you know that that creative process it, it just needs a mat process of maturation it's like a fine wine yeah and, and did you find it easy to maintain focus and uh you know staff morale when it takes four to five years to release a film uh it, I, I won't say it's easy um mm. i you know i i would say various projects have a challenge in different ways but you know more than anything else i think it, it com that comes down to leadership you know um Leadership is really, really important in helping a team navigate through the sort of challenges and, and pitfalls of creativity. Uh, so if leadership tends to sort of try to make things seem like it's always rosy and, hey, you, we're doing amazing work and this is just amazing, mm. when, you, when you hit a pitfall, it can be hard. But at least in my experience, when leadership is, is honest and forthcoming, you know, hey, we're trying to take this hill and it's like it's stormy and it's rainy and it's dark and this isn't going to be easy, but we're in it together. Um, then it's much easier for, you know, for people to sort of get behind it and kind of, yeah, let's do it as a team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the leadership um, factor there. To infinity and beyond. On Toy Story, um, generating $373 million at the box office, it has effectively paved the way for an IPO. And I know that, you know, like uh, Woody and Buzz Lightyear eventually seeing light of day, the IPO was also uh, fraught with challenges. And I know you talk about this in your book. So what can you um, tell us about the IPO, some of the challenges faced and how they were overcome? Yeah, so when I went to my publisher for the book, I told him I was going to make a page turner out of an IPO, uh, and, and because it really was an adventure. Uh, the problem in Pixar's case, and it's not uncommon today even, it was that most investors, they like stability. So they like mm. companies that have steady growth rates, regular earnings, reliable um, sort of quarterly reports. They like steadiness, reliability, and they don't like surprises. Mm. Um, that's obviously well known. Um, you know, in, Pixar was the opposite of that in, by every single measure. Uh, you know, you release films that are completely unpredictable. The revenue streams that they throw off are unpredictable. They're lumpy. They don't have any any sort of steady, you know, growth. They just don't have any of the characteristics that investors like. So mm -hmm. they make investors really nervous. So 
to you know, I felt it would therefore be extremely hard to find investors and especially to find investment banks that would uh, sort of be willing to take the company public. Uh, and but I did, we didn't really have a choice because animated feature films cost 100 to 150 million dollars to make and mm. we needed to finance them ourselves and there was no way to raise that kind of money um on the without going to the equity markets you know banks at that time weren't going to loan us that kind of money so the equity markets were the only option and so um i mean it's funny looking back at it but but we had a really hard time finding an investment banker yeah. and and you know i document that's that that story in the book uh and even to this day you know i felt the investment bankers we found they they really took a um a, a risk with pixar but i approached it you know and i and I, I i talk about this as well which is just that you know i decided that just to be totally straight and forthcoming about the risks mm. and because even myself you know I didn't want to have investors, you know, sort of buy into something that they thought was, you know, something rosier than it was. You know, on the one hand, this was a bet to sort of change the entertainment industry and remake the field of animated entertainment mm -hmm. uh, to do something that hadn't been done in two generations. On the other hand, it was, you know, a long shot. And so uh, we disclosed that. And so I felt and I slept well at night because I knew that we had always been really open with our investors and those that were involved were happy to be involved. They knew that what they were investing in. Yeah, and I guess um, on finding the right investment bankers, it's no different to finding the right uh, venture capitalists who are aligned with the company's mission and objectives. And you know, I think you tell the story of a couple of bankers from uh, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs who initially enthused about the prospect of listing Pixar but then dropped it like a rock. Dropped it like a rock, much to the chagrin of Steve, because he really dreamed of working with those guys, and mm. and um, you know had sort of a sense that there were like only two, there was the only two investment bankers in the <laughs> world, kind of a thing. But um, you know, my take is that you know, my, you know, money is green, <laughs> and yeah. and so you know, if you it doesn't so much matter what who your investment bankers are, as long as you can put together a um, you know a, a, a sort of well thought out good transaction that the people can understand. Stand. Couldn't agree more on that. And um, look, I wanted to ask one more question on Pixar, and then we'll jump across into the world of Eastern uh, spirituality and, and philosophy. But uh, okay, on, on the brain trusts, um, Pixar is you know noted for developing a brain trust, which essentially was a special group of. Uh, senior executives, uh, creative minds in the company where people could get together and just elicit frank feedback. Um, and if a movie essentially sucked, they would say so. Um, how important is it to have these types of checks and balances in place to ensure people don't fall victim to, say, some of the psychological flaws that we all have, uh, that we're all prone to, like jumping to conclusions and, you know, near enough is good enough and that type of thing? Actually, I, I, I've come to conclude over the years that it's virtually impossible to do really great innovative work without it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that the, the bane, one of the banes of doing great work is, is what we would call confirmation bias, mm -hmm. uh, um, which is that, um, you know, we become so beholden, uh, so vested um, in our own ideas. We have so much ego in, in a way that we lose the ability to listen. And then we do one of two things. We either only listen to those people that are sort of, 
you know, sort of affirming our worldview um, without really giving us any critical feedback. Mm -hmm. Or we're with people that are able to give us good critical feedback, but we're not paying attention to them. Uh, and I and I think this is one of the things that people didn't, you know, perhaps may have missed in all those things about Steve, um, as well as the, uh, the creators at, at, at Pixar, which is that he wanted pushback. You know, he he didn't come in and and um, just dictate everything that needed to be done. He he was a listener um, as as well, and so he would surround himself with just a few people, but the right people. Um, who were able to um, push back, and uh, but it wasn't easy pushing back on him uh, because he was vested in his ideas. But you could, and he would listen, and um, that's been my experience, kind of over and over again. And it's the old adage: in order to do that, we have to kind of check the ego at the door. Mm -hmm. uh, and the challenge is that the very kind of momentum that gives us the drive to do great work it requires a lot of self confidence. So that self-confidence works against us <laughs> when it comes to listening to others to get the, 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 the feedback that we need. And so it really requires a balance of drive and self-confidence with the ability to yield enough to listen to the right people. And I think great leaders will always ask their people to, to challenge them on anything um, rather than just agree and say yes, yes, yes all the time because that then – effectively diminishes the likelihood of coming up with really awesome creative work because you need to be surrounding yourself with all types of different people, different skill sets, uh, different perspectives of, of the world, but they need to be free to challenge you. They need to, and, and, it's hard. and it's one of the things that even leaders sometimes have a hard time seeing in themselves because mm. if you ask a leader this question, many will go, yeah, sure, of course I talk to people and get feedback, but, um, but again, it's that sort of confirmation bias or like living in your own echo chamber <laughs> it would be in a, in a modern in a, a vernacular for it, which is yeah. that you're really only listening to views that are validating um, your own rather than really going out there and investigating, it's really an investigation into the validity of your own sort of thoughts and ideas. Yeah, and that's a great lesson there for our audience. On checking your ego at the door, uh, you left Pixar in 2001 uh, to pursue spirituality and Eastern uh, philosophy, uh, two topics that I and many of my former guests say help to underpin or help to I suppose, stimulate innovation and creativity, especially in a business context. So, I mean, was this an easy transition for you to make back in, you know, the mid or the early 2000s coming out of the world of Pixar and working with the likes of Steve Jobs in the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley to embracing spirituality? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, I stayed on Pixar's board until the sale to Disney in um, 2006, so I was sort of watching over the company for, from that side. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I took a sabbatical in my day-to-day -day life that turned to a sort of new direction in life for me, and it came from a certain place. I, I observed that the sort of corporate mentality, as, as we've talked about, has, mm -hmm. is very kind of one-dimensional. Uh, it's very focused on acquisition and sort of profits uh, at all costs. And But there are some great hidden costs to that. Um, one of those hidden costs would be stress. Uh, um, another would be sort of loss of meaning. Another would be sort of loss of creativity, loss of innovation kind of a thing. That we can almost be defined by that corporate life. 
And I felt there was a danger to that. Um, and I saw it, you know, both within corporations and with the way, you know, people experience stress and, and agitation in their lives. And I had long been interested in Eastern philosophy, meditation, those kinds of ideas. And I decided to go off and explore that. Um, and I'll say, you know, I did it as somewhat of a cynic. Uh, you know, so I'm like, I'm like not easily swayed. You know, it's very easy for me to look at those things and say, ah, you know, there's nothing here. But, but you know, I felt that there was probably something deep there that mm. that might be really helpful for contemporary culture. And so that's what I did. I studied meditation and Eastern philosophy for what turned out to be several years, and I started a foundation with several other people to bring those ideas to contemporary life. Um, and essentially, I. Many ways, I proved out the hypothesis that I had, which is that um, corporate life, uh, creativity, innovation, business life is, is amazing. It produces so many wonderful things, so much prosperity, so much innovation. Um, but there is a danger of it being too one-dimensional, and we lose a dimension of life that that can bring a lot more sort of contentment and meaning. And the idea is not to abandon one for the other, but to integrate both. And, you know, this is what I discovered in these great philosophers of the middle way, which are a sort of an adjunct to meditation. And so, um, so I became very, very inspired by that. And now a lot of my work is focused on, on those ideas. You mentioned you have validated your hypothesis around uh, the use of you know, meditation in a corporate context. So, I mean, what have you found working with uh, corporates for the past 13 years with the Juniper Foundation um, in terms of the impact on their work because um, it's one thing to go out there and do great work but it's another for it to be sustainable and for people to genuinely be happy and also to make better decisions um, because if you're not constantly driven by emotion and ego like we've said you check your ego out the door it does open you up to a to feedback and to exploring lots of different things that perhaps you normally wouldn't do it does although i think sometimes i think that's a little bit a little bit of sort of uh, of a red herring in the sense mm -hmm. that people ask me this all the time. Like, I need my stress. I need my ego. I, mm -hmm. I need my erratic emotions in order to do great work. Yeah. Uh, and But I find that, gosh, you know, like, you can do great work. Um, uh, great work emanates from a sort of flow, a sort of a... A, a sort of an inner drive it, it doesn't have to be driven by sort of negative emotion by mm -hmm. you know but by, by sort of fear and stress and paranoia and all of those things uh um it's really possible to do great things and and that that are intrinsically rewarding and and so i think this the engagement with um, meditation, the middle way, these ideas is to kind of get out of these narratives that keep us stuck in a sort of stressful way of being. Mm -hmm. So we can open ourselves to something else. Um, and we might end up working a little differently, but I think the rewards that come from it um, could be, can be immense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it was Socrates who said, uh, emotion clouds or emotion distorts judgment. And if we can take emotion out of the equation, then we're far more likely to respond to any situation, whether in a work or a life context, with um, reason rather than react with, uh, from a place of emotion or, or ego. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you an example that I often give sure. sometimes. So, like, I was a so I was a business executive, right? And so, um, and so, there's a certain way of being a business executive. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's a there's a whole narrative around being a business executive, and it's great, and it really works well when you're being a business executive. But what about when you're being a husband, a father, an individual, just mm-hmm. a person who's alive, a person in the community, a neighbor? You know, all of those things. Sometimes. The, the narrative of business executive, you know, doesn't work so well in those ways. Yeah. And if you're stuck in that, um, in that narrative, it's as if we're sort of imprisoned by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the goal of, of of these ideas is to free us, you know, from those narratives that keep us stuck, um, so that we don't have to be quite so bound by them. And then that opens us up to almost, you know, breathe a different kind of air, you know. Mm-hmm be a different kind of a way so it's very it's it's very freeing to sort of not have to be the same actor all the time on the on the on the same stage and and um that's what i've found over the years anyway and on uh, your resignation from pixar to pursue uh, spirituality I, I know steve jobs i mean it's it's been chronicled many times uh practice zen buddhism and it's often credited with uh, the simplicity of the first macintosh and the minimalism and so on but um I mean, how did he take the news that you were leaving Pixar to pursue um, spirituality and philosophy? Well, you know, he was—he uh, he understood it. He was very sort of empathetic and understanding towards mm-hmm. it. And the fact that I was remaining on Pixar's board meant I was, you know, going to it, it, at least oversee some of the things that that that, that needed to be done. But you know, I, I think he had a great. Re- you know, respect for it. One time he told me he was glad that one of us was doing it. I mean, he was off, you know, focused on making these incredible products and I was off kind of doing this stuff, exploring the mountains, so to speak. And, yeah. um, but, oh, oh, we talked about it a lot and I, he was very supportive of it. Mm. You know, it, it, it's interesting. It, it's like, you know, spirituality in a word has become in a way, it's a little bit of a dirty word, you know, yeah. it's like a little, you know, new age or what does it mean or, or something like that. <laughs> Right, right, and all that kind of stuff. But, but really, it's it it's about just opening up an, you know, another sort of side to us, right? You could say that, that all of our experience, the experience that we have, comes from it's generated by the mind, the brain, whatever we want to call it. And so, if we're experiencing hardship, stress, agitation, fear, you know, all, you know, um, all of those things, those feelings are coming from inside of yes. us. By the same token, if we want to experience joy, contentment, harmony, well-being, love, you know, just a good feeling of being alive, um, those are also coming from within inside of us. So the challenge is. Um, how do we get from one to the other? Um, if the experiences, both experiences are coming from inside of us and we would like a little more of the one that has, you know, sort of more joy and freedom and spontaneity mm-hmm. in it, how do we get to that? And this is the, the this is the reason to engage that kind of um, exercise in our life because we have to work at it a little bit. Uh, and, and that's really the function of meditation is to is to draw out that side of us. Uh, it's like um, exercising a, a different muscle. Uh, yeah. If you think of those parts of the mind as muscles, we have to exercise them. Yeah, definitely. And what you said there about uh, trying to focus more on the joy instead of the anguish, um, I suppose there's some overlap there with you know what guys like uh, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins teach around neuro-linguistic programming where no external event has meaning other than which you give it. 
Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And the thing is that these things, it's funny to think of it this way, but like joy is a habit. We, we have the habit, you have the capacity for it, or, or we don't. Most of us have the capacity for it, but it's not, we may not have walked the path enough. So we have to sort of exercise that, that you know, you call it a neural pathway if you want, mm. but we have to sort of exercise that path. And the question is, how are we going to do that? And it's not likely to happen in the normal sort of performance drive of day-to-day life. So we have to create some space to exercise those pathways, just the same way that, you know, if you want stronger muscles and bones, you've got to create some space to exercise. That's right. And, 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 um, and that's what that side of, side of life is about. Yeah. I guess these days, guys like um, Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday are effectively spearheading the stoicism movement in Silicon Valley. Um, what's your take on stoicism um, as a form of, I suppose, centering ourselves, finding that balance in order to go out into the world and do do good work and, and be freer from ego? Well, you know, I, I think that, that, that any system is a good is a good system for it. I think the challenge with all these things, stoicism included, is that it's very easy to buy into the ideas. Mm. It's very easy to buy into the idea that, you know, simplicity is good, that, you know, controlling erratic emotions is good, that, you know, having harmony in life is 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 good. The the in a weekend you could you could, you could be like, that's a great idea. I want I want that. Uh, the challenge is how to embody it. Mm. Um, the reason that I like um, the the sort of meditation tradition that, or at least the Buddhist meditation tradition that I discovered, um, is because it's very pragmatic about giving us tools to embody those ideas. We literally we just have to practice these things every day, all the time, create these new grooves. And so, you know, I'm in favor of all of these things, but but I always look and and, and ask, you know, how do we embody it, make it part of who we are? Yeah, definitely. And, and it does come back to that, I suppose, uh, habitual practice, you know, doing something day after day after day to the point where it becomes a habit, that disciplined uh, meditation. Right. And that's what meditation, in a way, teaches us. I often teach, I say meditation. You, the, you know what the hardest part of meditation is? Saying meditation? <laughs> no, no, that, that could be. The hardest part of meditation is finding five minutes a day to do it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I often say that like if you find five or ten minutes a day to sit, just sit mm-hmm. right and do it like that is like sixty percent of the battle. Yeah, uh, because the, and then like if you if you've got the five or ten minutes, then you might as well meditate. But the the um, the hard part is creating the habit to open up another dimension in, a, in, in, in our life because the rush of our life is so strong mm. and it's so strong today with technology because, you know, no sooner have you woken up than we're attached to sort of emails or message checking, you know, we're checking things right away. How do we put a break on that just for five or ten minutes to let something else in? Yeah, it's funny. It's a bit of a paradox because a lot of people who say things like, oh, I haven't got ten minutes to meditate, oh, I haven't got time to exercise, are usually the people that need to meditate and exercise the most. Yes, we, we all do. And, and you know, I, have, I, I empathize with that because I think it's true. Mm. Um, and, and what I say is that we have to fight for that ten minutes. You know, that's the thing because the world out there isn't going to give it to us. Yeah. The, the the demands on us from, you know, just the economic demands, professional demands, family demands, community demands, the demands on us are real and strong. And so no one out there is sort of saying, oh, you know, 
you know, you rarely arrive at work and someone says, you know, did you have your 10 minutes of meditation today? Mm. Um, we've got to fight for it uh, and, 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 and make it sort of a priority. A, a, the biggest thing in meditation is like the will, the will to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess we just need to frame it and perceive it as an enabler of doing better work rather than an investment of time that's taking us away from uh, our creative pursuits or our work. Oh, I think that's true, although it doesn't necessarily have to be work. It's just yeah. a way of enhancing our experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think you know, we should necessarily go into meditation to be sort of more productive. I, I, I think the clarity it brings would make us more productive, but... You know, one of the problems is we're just so kind of addicted to performance. Mm. Um, you know, it's like we're measuring everything. And so I'd sort of say, look, if you're going to spend the 10 minutes a day doing meditation, at least this is the 10 minutes of your day that you don't have to worry about being measured. Yeah. So it's not about doing it well. It's, not, it's, it's sort of not about succeeding or getting likes or whatever the measurement is. You yeah. know, it's about being free from that. And so we want to drop our expectation and go into it just say, okay, for this 10 minutes, I'm going to just let myself be free from all of that. Yeah. Although I can see a lot of alpha types measuring their, uh, the amount of minutes they clock up uh, meditating and sharing that onto, onto uh, social media and all sorts of stuff. But that's another story. Um, it's another story. But <laughs> I tell you, if they're, but, but that's to miss the point. Yeah, you know, exactly. because, you know that that's just it's really easy to bring all our old habits into it, and mm -hmm. um, and that misses the point well, of it. You're effectively jumping back into your ego when you need to share. Hey, look at me! I did ten minutes of meditation. That's today. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so right. not everybody can just um, you know up and leave their jobs to pursue a lifestyle of um, of meditation of Zen. But I mean, what tips do you have for our audience uh, when it comes to you know, taking small steps every day. I mean, we mentioned, you know, maybe five minutes, ten minutes a day uh, meditating. Is there anything else they can do to tap into that more mindful, um, their more mindful selves? It, it, it's about, uh, it's a, I would say, fight for that ten minutes or fifteen minutes for you. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, so much of our day is consumed by the needs of, of sort of what that are being imposed upon us, right? You have so many emails to respond to, so many, you know, Facebook things that you want to respond to, so many demands at work. There are a lot of demands in our life uh, imposed by others, imposed on ourselves. Um, and, and, and I would say that's why I love this idea, even just beginning with 10 minutes, begin with something that um, is just dedicated to your uh, evolution as a human being. Mm. And um, it, if, if that's meditation, great, you know, you know, whatever it is, but some dedicated space, you know, every day where you can just be unbound from all that stuff just for that few minutes yeah. um, will create the habit of investing in, in yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think if people can invest in things like television and catching a film, they can definitely invest in 10 minutes a day on themselves and opening up their, their life and improving their experience of life. Um, I do have one more question on Pixar, which I forgot to ask earlier, and then we'll jump into our lightning round. Lawrence? Okay. Um, so the question was on failure. And Ed Catmull basically says in Creativity Inc. that trying to avoid failure by outthinking it dooms you to fail. Um, and this is quite common in large organizations where we add layers and layers of complexity to projects and ultimately it usually results in cost blowouts, schedule blowouts, um, benefits realization often becomes an afterthought. So, I mean, how did 
Pixar, I mean, we mentioned the culture of innovation, but what was done to effectively create a culture of sharing ideas and of embracing failure as a necessary evil when it comes to learning and making those breakthrough sort of ideas? Yeah, it, it's all about risk management. Mm-hmm. And so the more that you layer in to control your risk, the less innovative that you're likely to be. It's, it, it, it's virtually a, a direct you know, correlation. So you can build as many safety mechanisms you know, uh, um, as you want. It, it's like, um, uh, and the more safety mechanisms that you lay, the great, but you won't see much in, you know, sort of creativity and innovation. So you have to strip out the safety mechanisms. And that's hard. It feels naked in a way because mm. you know, you want, you're, you're exposed. And Pixar was a company that um, was able to live with that exposure. So you have to create an enclave in your company or a cultural in, in your company where it's okay to be exposed to that kind of risk. Uh, it has to be okay. Uh, we have, you have to sort of allow for it. Um, and then not be too upset when it happens because yeah. it will happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it happened at Pixar. And by the way, you know, I should say, you know, Pixar has to struggle with this issue all the time. Every time it makes a new film, it's challenged again with the same thing because there's a danger of sort of running to safety. Mm. Uh, and, and you have to sort of um, be willing to take those risks sort of every time you step up to the plate. Yeah, and I guess it comes back to that roadmap you were talking about earlier where you effectively built in the cost of creative mistakes halfway through a through a the writing of a script or having to rewrite a script several times and all that sort of stuff. So it's built in so that when it does happen, there are no surprises and there is room in the budget or whatever it, ha- it happens to be um, to, you know, get through that. Yeah. I mean, you, um, you build it in in terms of your budget, but, but then, um, you know, it's like the difference between being on a cruise ship and a, and a small sailboat. Like mm-hmm. on a cruise ship, like it's built to not fail, right? It, like in a hundred years, like a, every once in a hundred years, right? Uh-huh. But on a small boat, you know, um, you you have you know you have much more risk, but you can explore much more territory. You can discover much more, right. you know, on a, on a, on a little boat. And so you have to create that feeling. Of, of being on a small boat. If it capsizes, you know, you, you, you're in the water, you have to ride the boat, climb on, dry yourself off, and keep sailing. Yeah. Um, I, love, so I love that analogy. That's great, Lawrence. Um, okay, so you have given our audience a lot of um, value bombs today, but I can't let you go without throwing you into our lightning round. Are you ready to rock and roll? Ready to rock and roll. Let's do this. So question number one is an interesting one because I feel like you have worked at one of the most exciting, inspiring organizations of our time. But the question is, if you could work for any organization at any stage of the company life cycle, so we could go back to the 18th century if we need to, who would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I would pick any of the great startups. I just think that, you know, being around innovation is is um, is a privilege and, and an adventure. So I don't know whether it, whether whether it's Ford or IBM or Apple in the early days, uh, um, wrestling with innovation and newness is kind of where the, the excitement is for me. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, likewise. Um, question number two is if you could ask anyone a question that are alive, who would it be and what would you ask? Oh my goodness! Uh, I well, in all my thing, I would go back to 
2,000 years, there was a Buddhist master called Saraha who was absolutely amazing. And I would ask, what do you think of our world today? Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, we've had a few people say that they'd like to ask people from a different time what they'd make of our world. Some people refer to something as, as recent as their grandparents and saying, hey, what do you think of yeah. the world today? Or what do you think of what I've done with my life and that type of thing? So that's quite interesting. Right, right. Um, and finally, the last question is, and maybe we won't talk about meditation for this one, what other rituals or routines do you have on, that you partake in on a daily basis to stay on top of your game? Oh, well, I'm very big into exercise. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a runner for many years. And then a couple of years ago, I read this book that said, you know, as you age, um, resistance training is becomes more and more important. And, um, and I really bought into this idea. And, the, and there's a book that's called Younger Next Year. It's mm -hmm. kind of an exercise book. It's it and, but it basically has the thesis that we have the sense that uh, as we, we age on a sort of a, um, uh, like a linear rate. So it's a slow, steady decline from, you know, like like 45 to 85, something like yeah. that. Um, but they've proven that um, that doesn't have to be. Um, we can actually keep improving ourselves. At the end, eventually, we, we'll lose it all as, yeah. as, as we ultimately decline. But we can really um, have a lot of quality of life, you know, just driven from that. And so I bought into this. And so uh, I I'm became, my, my wife kind of calls me a gym rat now, although I'm not <laughs> built. If you saw a picture of me, you would see I'm, I'm very kind of lean and scrawny. But, um, but, uh, but, but exercise um, is, is become an important part of my life. And I actually think, you know, exercise and meditation, even though they're hard to fit into our lives, um, they really, really pay off. I mean, they yeah. pay off more than a lot of the other things we do. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So at least I hope. At least I hope so. At least that's where I'm. I'm putting my money. Yeah, likewise, and I'm sure that resonates with a lot of our audience. Um, so, where can people go to find out a little bit more about yourself, Lawrence, and, and connect with you? I mean, I understand the book is coming out this Friday in Australia on the 17th of March. That'll be available on Amazon and at all good places that good books are sold. But where can people go to connect with you? Yeah, you go to my website, which is www.lawrencelevy.com. And on there, you can learn about the book. You can learn about Juniper Foundation. You can learn about me. And you can write to me as well. I love to hear from people. And I always write back. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your um, stories today. I'm sure the uh, listeners of Future Squared uh, will share this with all of their friends. So thanks again, Lawrence. You've been awesome. Just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from Great Venture Returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.